It was the night before Jesus died. The Passover meal was progressing and Jesus sought to use these last fleeting hours that he had with his disciples to encourage them, to comfort them, and to prepare them for the trial that was to come. In the midst of this, Jesus prayed to the Father. And among many things, he prayed for their unity. His desire was that, in Jesus' own words, they might be one as we are one. That unity was sealed the following day when Christ died for our sins and brought together a people for his own possession. Throughout the history of the church, we have seen evidence of that unity. Yet, this unity in Christ is something we can never take for granted. The early church struggled with racial issues. The Corinthian church struggled with divisions of various kinds. And even as we've studied through the book of James, we have seen that there were issues of partiality that churches that James wrote to were struggling with. While the church of God is indeed redeemed by Christ's sacrifice, the church is made up of sinners. And sin can test the unity that we have in Christ. Another example of this unity was the church in Philippi. Now, we often don't think of the church at Philippi as one that struggled with unity issues. I mean, even as we would read the first chapter of this letter that Paul wrote to them, he praises God for the deep relationship that he had with them as they worked together, partnering in the gospel, in the good times and in the bad. But there were some issues that they had with unity in this church. An argument between two women in the church was concerning enough to Paul that he mentions them by name in the latter part of this letter. And it's perhaps with this in mind that he writes in the second chapter of this letter, talking with them about their unity. So as we look at this passage of Scripture today, we will see that Christ is the source of our unity. And that is a unity we must strive to maintain but that Christ is also the example we must follow in pursuit of that unity. Turn with me, if you will, in your copies of the Scriptures to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be considering the first 11 verses this morning. Before we dive in and and look at these verses detail by detail, let's first read it as a whole. We can give uh, an overall uh, understanding and grasp of this section. So listen as I read Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as Paul begins in this second chapter here, he he wants to point the Philippians to their unity with Christ. And he begins by by using five if statements. And in these five if statements, I don't think Paul here is questioning whether the Philippians experienced these things in their union with Christ, but rather calls their attention to these things as they considered that unity they have with him. So he begins in in verse 1 and says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ. The idea, I think, here behind encouragement is one of someone coming alongside you to comfort and to counsel and to exhort you. In fact, the word in, in the Greek that's translated encouragement here is very similar to another word that Jesus used to describe the Spirit that would be coming after he left this earth. He called the Spirit the Helper, the Helper, the Encourager. They're very similar ideas here. As we consider our salvation in Christ, Christ has promised us that he'll never let us go, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, that Christ is with us to offer comfort and offer encouragement and counsel to our souls. And that's not something that we might experience one day when we reach heaven. It's something we experience now as we experience that unity with Christ. So Paul, as he points them to this unity, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. He goes on and says, if there's any comfort from love. I think a very similar concept here. I think comfort of love here uh, describes a closeness. Think of maybe someone coming alongside you and whispering those words of comfort to you in your time of need. As we consider God, he is indeed a God of comfort. He is indeed a God of love. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In Christ, we have comfort. And he gives us that comfort, and indeed that we are able to comfort one another. We experience that comfort in unity with him. Paul moves on to say, if there's any participation in the Spirit, the word participation could possibly also be translated uh, fellowship with the Spirit, or sharing with the Spirit, or partnership with the Spirit. And we, we who have known Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know that as, as redeemed people, the Spirit of God has indwelled our hearts. We experience that fellowship, that communion with Him. We experience that work that He is doing in our lives. He's working with us to conform us into the image of His Son. It is the Spirit that is the source of the spiritual gifts that we are able to use within the body to build up the body of Christ. It is the Spirit who is the source of the fruit in our lives that evidences our salvation. 
And even as we might consider other things the Spirit is doing in us and with us. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There are times where maybe we come before the Lord and we have this desire, but we don't even know how to put it into words. And we come before him in need and the Spirit is there with us, praying with us, interceding with us and bringing those needs before the Father. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We have a relationship with that Spirit and that relationship can be, can, uh, be grieved. Can, there can be tension in that, in that relationship because of the sin in our lives and we're called to, in Ephesians, to not grieve the Holy Spirit but to strive to walk in faithfulness with Him. As we even consider the fellowship, the communion with the Holy Spirit, every time we gather as God's people and we recite our church covenant together, we say these words, it's, a, it's, a, it's from 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen: the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In Christ, we have a fellowship, a relationship, a partnership with the, with the Holy Spirit as he works in our lives. Next, Paul says, if there's any affections, and this is quite possibly my favorite one, uh, quite literally in the Greek, it, could, it would be translated, if there's any bowels. Uh, if you were to read the old King James Version of, of, of the book of Philippians in the first chapter, Paul says how he yearns for the, the Philippians with the bowels of Christ Jesus. Literally, he loves them from the gut. Now, in that day and age, the center of emotions, of love, was the gut, was the bowels. Today, we, we, that sounds crazy to us. We, we say we love from the heart. Okay? But for them, it was from the bowels. And so as we think about that, we see in this the intensity of Christ's love for us. And then he goes on and says, if there's any sympathy, possibly also translated, if there's any mercy. And even as we have sung this morning and considered that we have received Christ's love, and it is unmerited, we do not deserve the love of Christ but he is given to us by his mercy. So, as we consider our unity with Christ, we rejoice in the encouragement of Christ. We rejoice in the comfort of love, in the participation of the Spirit, in the affection of Christ, and in the, the mercy, the sympathy of Christ. And so as we consider that this morning, as we consider that unity that we have in Christ, first, I ask Maybe there are some of us here today that can say, I don't have a relationship with Christ. I don't have that unity with him. Those things you just described are, are foreign to me. I don't know them from a personal experience. Well, I encourage you to consider the fact that these are not things you can earn in trying to earn his, God's attention and favor. It's, it's offered to us by his grace and by his grace alone. As we consider this salvation that is from God, it is not merely fire insurance. It's not just a salvation from hell and a forgiveness from sin. But true salvation results in a relationship with Christ that manifests itself in our lives. If we know Christ, we know these benefits. 
And so even as we gather this morning, and we, even as we consider the table and the sacrifice that Christ has, has given on our behalf, as we even maybe sit, spend some time this morning in silent reflection, even as we leave this place today and, and maybe enjoy a meal with one another, I hope that we will spend time to consider these great blessings that we have in Christ and thank Him for these abundant blessings. But we also need to understand that these blessings that, that are from God at times come from God through other people in the church. And indeed, we're called to extend these same blessings to one another in the body of Christ. So as we consider that Christ is the source of our unity, he's also that this is a unity we must strive to maintain within the body. And so Paul continues on in verse 2 and starts off with saying, Complete my joy. As Paul says to the Philippian church, be unified, maintain the unity that you have in Christ. And, and as you maintain this unity, as you live out this unity, you will give me joy. Paul writes to the Philippians as a shepherd. He's one who helped establish the Philippian church. He's one that has sought to give his life energies while here on this earth to see the church at Philippi built up and strengthened. His desire for the Philippian church is that they be unified and that they'd recognize that unity is in Christ. And for them to live out that unity was a source of great joy for Paul. As we consider spiritual leaders of, of churches, of our church even here, we recognize that they labor to shepherd the flock of God. Their desire is for the unity of the church and for unity with one another. And for, for shepherds of that flock to see that unity lived out in reality is a great source of joy for them. So Paul says, complete my joy by living in unity. What does that unity look like? Well, he says in, in verse 2, he gives us three elements of that unity. By being of the same mind, by having the same love, and by being in full accord and of one mind. By having the same mind, literally to think the same way. As we are to seek to maintain the unity we have in Christ, we are to think the same way. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that I have to agree with you on absolutely everything we talk about? Do I have to agree with you on who the next president of the United States should be? Do I have to agree with you on where we should send our children to school? I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I don't think Paul says that we must have agreement on absolutely everything we talk about. But if he's not saying that, then what is he saying here by calling us to be of the same mind? Well, in just three verses down in verse five, he, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The thing is, Paul is telling the Philippians here, Be of, that, of the same mind, think the same way, and you are to think the same way Christ did. That same mind is to be the mind of Christ Jesus. And we'll look at that here in just a few minutes. We're also to be of the same love. The two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength and to love one another as yourselves. This is a love that shows no partiality. In fact, this is a love that seeks to imitate Christ in his love. In John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, love as I have loved you. 
This love is one of imitating Christ and his love. We are to be of the same love. And then we're to be of one accord and of the same mind. Literally, one souled. We're to be so united that we're not focusing on ourselves, but as we prioritize other people, we live out unity. So we're to strive to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. We've, we've heard these three elements. Maybe how do we flesh these out? What do these look like in our daily interactions with one another? Well, Paul goes on to explain that in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, that, word, that phrase should ring a bell. We've heard it considered in the book of James. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is literally to do things for the purpose of self, regardless of its effects on other people. Selfish ambition is concerned with self-promotion, with self-gratification, and with self-pleasure. There's great pride in selfish ambition. And really, as we consider, this is the source of so many of our sins. Why do I get angry with other people? Why do I lie? Or cheat? Why do I crave or covet things that are not my own? Is it not because of my own selfish desires? And my desire to promote myself and to see my own selfish pleasures lived out? It is a source of so many of our sins. And Paul says, if you're going to live in unity with one another, you must do nothing from selfish ambition. He says, do nothing from conceit. Literally, empty glory. To exalt yourself for no purpose. To no avail. And as again, as we've seen, as we've walked through this, our study in James, we've seen that God despises the proud, the one who elevates himself, who exalts himself. But he gives grace to the humble. And as we humble ourselves, God promises to raise us up. So we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility... Count others more significant than ourselves. This is literally the exact opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. To, uh, to esteem others more significant than ourselves is to conclude through th- careful consideration that other people are more important and to then act upon that conclusion. We see other examples of this in Scripture where the Bible calls us to esteem our governmental leaders, to see them as in a position of importance and to pray for them and to submit to them. We are to esteem our pastors and elders, again, to put them in a position of importance and to honor them and to care for their needs and to listen to them. But Paul here is saying that we should esteem one another. I should esteem you as more significant than myself. And if I am then esteeming you, seeing you as more significant than myself, then I am to not look at my own interests only, but to the interests of others. Now, as Paul says this, I don't think he's suggesting that there's a complete denial of self, that I am in some sort of asceticism, some sort of self, just completely uh, not caring for any of my own needs to suffer so that I might be able to help other people. That's not, I think, what Paul is saying here, because he says to not look at your interests only, which is to suggest that you do, to some degree, consider your own interests, but also the interests of others. 
as we put these two together to esteem others more significant than ourselves and to consider their own interests even above our own. This is humility lived out in action. As we consider others more significant than ourselves, then we take action to meet their needs and to advance their interests. And as we do so, we walk in unity. This is the unity of Christ. This is the unity that we find in Christ and then we are called to strive to maintain. So as we consider that for us here at Eden Baptist Church, I encourage you to look around the room. If you're members of Eden Baptist Church, you have covenanted, you have agreed to walk in fellowship with this body of Christ. You have agreed to think, to walk in this way with one another, to have humility and to serve one another. As we consider the leaders that we have here at Eden, their desire is for our spiritual growth and for our unity. And they labor towards this goal. And their reward is to see us grow and to see us walk in unity. And that is great joy for them. And so I want to consider the leaders that God has placed over you, whether it's the pastors and elders here, whether it's your home group leader, a Bible class teacher, kids, that includes your parents. God has placed them over you as, as leaders and their desire is for your spiritual growth and for you to walk in unity with the body of Christ. And that's great joy for them. And so we should seek to not rob them of that joy, but as we walk in unity, we grant them that joy of serving us in the way of leading us and shepherding us. But let's consider the fact that Eden Baptist Church is not immune from divisions and quarrels. And I may not necessarily be talking about large discussions that cause division of sides and arguing between groups of people. But I'm probably just talking about uh, our relationships with one another. I want you to consider the relationships you have with people in this church. Are there people here that you don't get along with? Are there people here that you avoid on a Sunday morning? Are there just people that, for whatever reasons, just are not the people you enjoy associating with and so you uh, do not seek to develop a relationship with them? And if that's true in our lives, we have to understand that this is probably due to the fact that we are not walking in the same mind, having the same love, and considering other people more significant than ourselves and looking out for their needs. It's very possible that we have those tensions in our relationships because we are considering our own needs. We're walking in selfish ambition. And we're not considering those, that person that I don't get along with as more significant than myself and considering their interest above my own. So if that's the case for you today, I encourage you to seek to maintain the unity that we have in Christ and go to that person and in humility, seek to make that relationship, to restore that relationship, to build that relationship so that you can walk in unity with that person and that will affect the unity of this whole church. Kids, do your parents drive you crazy? 
Do you have a hard time listening to your parents? If I asked your parents, would they say you have selective hearing? Okay. Are, are the things they ask you to do around the house just really burdensome for you? Or are the rules they've set in place over you something that just drive you crazy? Are you having a hard time submitting to your parents? Well, I want you to consider that most likely the reason why that is so is because you are not considering your parents more significant than yourself. And you're not looking out to their interests. And you know what? Their interest is you. And to see you grow in, 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 in a relationship with Christ and in unity with him, that is their desire. So I encourage you, kids, I know this is maybe hard sometimes, but relate to your parents in the spirit of humility. Consider them more important than yourself and listen to them. And in humility, respect them and walk as they've asked you to walk. Husbands and wives, we don't, we're not immune to this as well. Are there issues in your marriage? Are there things that your spouse does that just drive you crazy? As I was practicing on this last night, Danielle shook her head. I'm like, wait, wait, what is that? What, what do I do that bothers you? <laughs> Thankfully, she was kidding. Uh, I hope. I hope she was kidding. <laughs> but are there things that are creating tension in your marriage? I would encourage you. It's very possible the reason that is so is because you're not considering your spouse more significant than yourself. And you're not looking out to their own interests above your own. So I'd encourage us, if that is us, if we are having tension in our marriages, to, to go to your spouse in the spirit of humility and to seek to care for them as one more significant than yourself. There's other ways that we can seek to strive for unity in this church. And one of them, the first one that I, as I considered, you've already done this morning. You've come to church. <laughs> but as we come to church, do we come simply to sit in the chair and to receive a good message, to listen to some good music and then go out the door? Or do we come to church with the orientation that I am here to bless someone? I am here to reach out to someone in this church and to get to know them and to be a blessing, to meet a need in some way. Is that what you think about when you come to church on Sunday morning? I hope that is. It's important that we get to know one another, that we listen to each other, that we learn more about each other. And as I learn about your strengths and your weaknesses, I then know how I can be a blessing to you. It's so important that we seek out to make relationships with one another. Another way, Scott kind of alluded to this morning in our call to worship, don't be so easily offended. We're all sinners. And sometimes we might say something that didn't come out exactly the way we wanted to. Or maybe you perceived it differently than we intended it to be perceived. And it came across as hurtful. But I encourage you in that, if that is indeed the case, if that's happened to you, do not... See those words as acts of maliciousness from that person. But consider the best. Assume the best in those people. And if there's issues, then go to them with a, again with a spirit of humility and seek to have clarity in that relationship, even in those words. Don't be so easily offended. We should just seek to engage in people's lives. 
And whether that's some of us as adults, maybe going to a teen's sporting event or to a play that they're in. Or whether that's uh, young mothers getting together for a play date and letting the kids run around and play and then spending the time of engaging in spiritual conversations with one another and building each other up. Or whether it's a, a, a bunch of young adults getting together for an activity just to spend time with each other. And again, getting to know one another and growing in Christ together. We need to seek to engage in the lives of one another. And in all of this, we should be seeking to speak God's word to each other. And that's as we get to know uh, other people and the situations we're in, we should be thinking about, okay, what words from God could I give to this person to encourage them in their situation? We should be constantly seeking to do this. So Eden Baptist, as we come together, can we come together and say that I am not coming to you for my own benefits. I'm not coming for my own self-promotion or praise, but I'm coming to love you. I'm coming to humbly seek to encourage you and to meet your needs, which are more important than my own. Is that the orientation we have when we come and gather as God's people? I hope it is. I think that's the orientation Paul calls us to here in Philippians 2. So we see that Christ is the source of our unity and we're to strive to maintain that unity. But Christ is also the example we must follow in the pursuit of unity. Before we get to that, I want us to ask the question, is this even a good idea? I mean, you may be sitting in the chair this morning and saying, considering other people more significant than myself, not looking out for number one, expending my energies to meet other people's needs, is this even a good idea? Well, if we were to ask people in our culture today, they would say, no, that's not a good idea. You should focus on yourself. You should meet your own needs. You should seek to build up your own self-esteem. Be proud in who you are. But we're very comfortable with the fact that Jesus' teachings are often contrary to what our culture tells us. And so we see here in Paul's uh, call to the Philippian church and his call to us today that we are to embrace this call to unity. But he doesn't tell us this without giving us an example of what it looks like ultimately. And the example that he gives us is Jesus Christ himself. And so we see in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is God. God himself, with all of the glory and with all of the privileges of being God. And Jesus didn't hold on to that glory and those privileges. He didn't seek to use his godness against us or even to use it to benefit himself. And we see this throughout the Gospels, but just as we maybe could think of one example, as we consider Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. After 40 days of not eating, you can assume that he's hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, Hey, I mean, you're God. You could take this stone and with your very words make it bread and then you can eat it and be satisfied. And Jesus said, I'm not going to use my powers as God to benefit myself. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is God. 
And I want you to, uh, to imagine for a moment that if Jesus had come as the richest, most powerful king in all of the world, it still would have been a horribly humiliating thing for him. To leave the thrones of heaven and to come down even to that position would have been such humility for him to accept. But he didn't come as the most richest, powerfulest uh, person on the wor- in the world. He came as a lowly, humble servant. And as if that wasn't enough. Verse 8 we read, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death by crucifixion was such a despised way to die. If you were a Roman citizen, it was beneath you. You could not be crucified if you were a Roman citizen because it was too beneath your standard, your dignity. It was a despised way to die. And the God who created all things, who sits enthroned in glory, came down and not only became a humble servant, but died the most despised death humanity could think of. He died on a cross. And so you think about this. God leaving heaven, entering into the the limitations of humanity, and then dying the most despised death. Why on earth would God ever do that? Well, I think Paul says the answer is because he considered your needs more important than his own. And because he loved you with an unconditional love. So we consider the humility we must have in walking in unity. Christ is the ultimate example of that humility. If you're with us today and you don't know Christ as your Savior and you have not experienced a relationship with Him, I just want you to think for a moment this unity that we strive for as a church, we strive for it because we have first individually known this love and sacrifice on our behalf. We as Christians enjoy the encouragement of Christ. We enjoy the comfort of His love. We enjoy the fellowship we have with the living God. We know his affection and his mercies for us. And we see this displayed in the suffering Savior that died for us. And if you're an unbeliever today, he's also done that for you. You can't work hard enough to earn his favor. He offers it to us freely if we come to him in the poverty of our sin and seeing our need for salvation and cry out to him for forgiveness and desire a restored relationship with the creator of all the universe, he will give it to us if we seek him. But if you're a believer among us today, we come in just a few moments to the table. And we come to this table united. We're united in Christ. He is the source of our unity. And we are to strive to maintain that unity. And so even as we come to this table, I encourage us to spend some time examining our hearts. And if there's issues we have with one another, we need to seek to resolve those issues with a spirit of humility, having the same mind that we have in Christ Jesus. We must follow his example in pursuit of unity. 
But we also come and worship the one who is humiliated for us. But that's not the end of the story. In verse 9, Paul continues on and says, Therefore, because of his sacrifice for us, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We come and we consider the one who was humiliated for us, but the one who is also exalted and worthy of our worship. And so we remember his sacrifice, and we praise him for that, and we seek to worship him even as the Father has highly exalted him. As we come to this table, we don't simply come to say thank you for the sacrifice. But we come and consider this sacrifice and the unity that we have in it. And we, we should seek to strive to maintain that unity by imitating him. And so as we consider the fact that Jesus, on that night before he died, he prayed for the unity of the church. Today we gather in unity. And we rejoice that through his sacrifice we can experience that unity. But we also come and consider the humble servant who saved us, who united us. We seek to follow him and we seek to worship him as the now exalted and glorious king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for salvation we have in your name. We thank you for the example of humility that you have given us. And Lord, we come before you as sinners, redeemed as your people. I just pray that you'd work in our hearts, that we would strive to maintain the unity that you have given us in your sacrifice. And Lord, even now as we remember that sacrifice with the elements of this table, Lord, may you be worshipped by your people as the exalted king. And may your position as the exalted King, as our Savior, change our lives that we might honor you with how we live. It's your name I pray. Amen.